Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the season premiere of Monitor Monday. This morning, we begin our 10th year of live broadcasting. And today's Monitor Monday is our special 60-minute edition. 11 of the nation's leading experts will look ahead to tell you what you can expect to experience in 2020. This morning, you're going to hear from Nancy Beckley, William Tomby, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Leslie March, Angela Phillips, Edward Roach, Maureen Testoni, Stanley Nockinson, and Andrew Walker. You see, 2020 ushers in a formidable decade for healthcare. Decisions being made in Washington will impact every practice, facility, and health system. With so many changes taking place, you need to stay informed, and Rack Monitor Monitor Mondays will help you stay in front of the issues that will all deliver of healthcare. Now, let's look ahead to 2020, and we switch to Chicago, and we check in with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, welcome to 2020, everyone. Over the holiday period, I experienced a utilization review professional's worst nightmare. My 90-year-old mother was hospitalized after falling and breaking both arms and was unable to return home. She had an elevated white count and CPK and was dehydrated, so they placed her as observation for some IV fluids. The next morning, her labs improved, but without the use of her arms, she could not stand independently and would need assistance for activities of daily living. Of course, I knew she did not need a three-day inpatient stay to get her qualified for a SNF, and I explained those rules to my sister, who's down with her. While I was on the phone with my sister, who was visiting my mom's room at the time, the doctor rounded and said that he was going to admit her as an inpatient so that she could go to a nursing home in two days. My sister then said, but her status is observation. That means yesterday does not count, right? Now, of course, I was beaming with pride when she said that. The doctor's response, though, was, oh, don't worry. We can backdate the admission order to yesterday. And then he left the room. Now, I was faced with the ultimate dilemma. Do I ignore that remark and hope he backdates the order and lets her stay in three days? Or do I say something? Well, luckily, I had a third option. Because her mobility was so affected, I asked my sister to request an evaluation for acute rehab, and fortunately, they accepted her. It turns out the case manager did not let the doctor backdate the admission order. Now, her stay gave me a chance to see how the acute care hospital and rehab hospital were handling the new discharge planning rules, and both failed. While awaiting the rehab eval, the case manager did talk to my sister about finding a SNF, and they gave her a printed list of the five SNFs in the county that had the facility name, the phone number, and only the overall Medicare star rating. The rehab hospital provided a list of home care agencies that only listed the agency's name and phone number, not one word about quality. Now, I sure hope that these facilities will be tuning in to Mary Beth Pace's upcoming webinar 
on how her health system is addressing the new regulations, because they need some work. And speaking of new regulations, I hope all of you read the Rack Monitor e-news article published last Friday about the new versions of the important message from Medicare and the detailed notice of discharge. CMS made significant changes to both of these forms. For example, for Medicare Advantage patients, the important message must now indicate the planned name and the toll-free number. And the detailed notice of discharge requires you to cite the regulation that you used to determine that hospital care was no longer needed. These changes were made without any opportunity for comment and CMS falsely indicated that there would be no increase in burden for hospitals. Now, the good news is you can use the old forms until March 31st, so we can only hope that CMS will provide some guidance. I've expressed my questions and concerns to them, and so should you. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now to report on what therapy providers will face in 2020 is the President and Chief Executive Officer for Nancy Beckley & Associates, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for asking me back. We started this all on a cold January day. I forget what year it was, but it's, somehow it's 10 or years ago. Well, let's get started about outpatient therapy. I know Angie Phillips is going to be coming up and talking about things that are happening in the earth. I'm going to specifically address some things that are coming about for outpatient physical therapy, occupational therapy in particular. As a result of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018, um, listeners may recall that I constantly talked about the therapy cap. That legislation permanently eliminated the cap on therapy services. However, as a result of that limitation, they maintained what was the value of the old cap as level one threshold for therapy, which you have to attest to medical necessity in 2020 when you pass $2080 for physical therapy and speech language pathology combined, and another $2080 for occupational therapy. Additionally, that legislation lowered the threshold of $3,700, which was called manual medical review threshold, back down to $3,000, which is maintained today for another threshold level potential for review. So as a result of that legislation, which permanently eliminated the cap, the pay for in congressional terms, meaning if we're going to get rid of the cap, we've got to pick up the money someplace else. They actually instituted a bi-level um, reimbursement for physical therapists, occupational therapists versus PTAs and OTAs, similar to the differentiation for nurse practitioners and PAs with physicians. That um, today, January 1st this year, therapists are required to enter a modifier code for services that are performed by a PTA or an OTA that were done in whole or in part. CMS set a de minimis standard of 10%. And Ron, you should really like this one. The calculation on the 10%, for example, is if a 45-minute timed code treatment was done, 10% of that, the de minimis standard, would be 45 but according to the roundup method, 4.5 is really five minutes. So when you exceed the de minimis standard, you have to do six minutes. So 10% of 45 minutes is six minutes, which meets the de minimis standard of in whole or in part. 
I encourage all of our listeners that um, use PTAs and OTAs in their practice to understand these rules. Both APTA and AOTA have published guidelines. And there's no way, because payment's not impacted until 2022, for CMS to really be taking a look at anything. Nothing's going to trigger unless they do an audit. But I think people are really taking a look right now as to what the different scenarios are. And we're waiting for CMS to post some additional scenarios. The next issue, which kind of took the rehab world by a little bit of a surprise, the 2020 quarter one CCI edits created a couple of new edits for therapy that have become problematic. And we're, the therapy industry is working very closely to CMS to see hopefully if this was a clerical error or maybe not. But for dates of service where therapeutic activity, CPT code 97530, is completed, um, an evaluation cannot be done on the same day. You cannot modify that with um, a edit. So please take a look at your CCI edit table. Uh, No matter what site of service that you're at, the therapist can adjust accordingly. Those are the two most important things that I wanted to bring to your attention today. A lot more is going on with therapy, but those are the two most important things. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And coming up after the break, we continue with our 2020 Look Out, Look Ahead edition. Here on today's Monitor Monday, standing by is William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Leslie March, Angela Phillips, Maureen Testoni, Edward Roach, Stanley Nockerson, and Andrew Walker. This is Monday. It's January the 13th, 2020, and we're celebrating our 10th anniversary of live broadcasting here during this special 60-Minute News Edition 2020 Lookout. Look ahead. Stand by. The new year ushers in significant must-know changes to the Medicare program. They include reporting credits for implantable medical devices and managing patient accounts when such devices are billed. Medical device credits are still an easy mark for all auditing entities, and intense scrutiny promises to continue in this confusing, error-ridden area of reporting for hospital inpatient, hospital outpatient, and ambulatory surgery center services. Join healthcare expert Michael Callahan as he walks you through all the traps that can snare your facility when reporting device credits. His important webcast is this Thursday, January 16th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. What can you expect from the recovery out of contractors in 2020? Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning and Happy New Year. What more can affect an alleged overpayment than the administrative law judge or ALJ that is given to your case? A sneaky and underpublicized case, which will affect every one of you listening, slid into common law last year with a very recent case dated only January 9, 2020, upholding and expanding the findings. The sole question was, is an administrative law judge, can they be appointed by someone other than the president or the department head under Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution? or are ALJs simply federal employees? The first case, Lucia versus SEC, and then the most recent case is Sarah White Dove Ridgeway versus Nancy Berryhill, which upheld and expanded Lucia. 
The Appointments Clause prescribes the exclusive means of appointing officers. Only the president, a court of law, or a head of department can do so. ALJs are appointed. In many states, the ALJs are direct employees of the single state agency. In other words, in many states, about half, the payroll check that the ALJ receives bears the emblem of the HHS for that state. I have litigated in administrative courts in approximately 33 states and have seen my share of surprises, but in one case many years ago, LinkedIn informed me that my appointed ALJ was actually a professional photographer by trade. Well, in Lucia, a Supreme Court case from last year determined that ALJs at the SEC were officers of the United States, that is in quotes, subject to the appointment clause of the Constitution, which requires officers to be appointed by the president, the heads of departments, or the courts. The court's decision concerned HHS because HHS's ALJs had not been appointed by the secretary, but rather by lower agency officials. The court, interesting, also held that the relief that should be granted to one who makes a timely challenge to the constitutional validity of the appointment of an officer who adjudicates his case should get relief. That could be monetary. We shall see. Well, in, 2000, in July 2018, Trump's Executive Order 13843 accepted ALJs from the competitive service, so agency heads like HHS Secretary Alex Azar could directly appoint the best candidates through a process that would ensure merit-based appointment of individuals. The executive order also accepted all previously appointed ALJs. So there became this pre-July 16, 2018 challenge and this post-July 16, 2018 challenge. But this very recent case that just came out approximately four or five days ago, the Dove Ridgeway case, expanded Lucia. So security benefits were at issue. So even though the ALJ decided on July 5, 2017, obviously pre-Trump executive order, that the benefits should not be given to the beneficiary. The, at the time of the administrative decision, the Lucia and Trump's executive order had not even been issued. The court still held that the ALJ needs to be appointed constitutionally and warranted a remand for a rehearing before a different constitutionally appointed ALJ, despite the exception by Trump via executive order. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. One of the issues we continue to monitor is a 340B drug discount program. With a look back, as well as what we can expect in 2020 for 340B, is the president of 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Good morning, Maureen. Welcome back to Monitor Monday. Thank you, Chuck. It's a real pleasure to join you again today. I'd like to congratulate you and the entire Monitor Monday team for your 10th anniversary. What a great accomplishment. 2019 was another very busy year for people involved in the 340B drug pricing program, and it marked the end of a remarkable decade of progress and challenge. One of the most important developments of this past year was the creation of a new secure website for use by 340B covered entities to check ceiling prices that they should be charged for all drugs covered by 340B. This is the first time such a resource has been available, and it introduced some much-needed price transparency. 
We are already seeing evidence of this working well. More than a dozen pharmaceutical companies have had to revise their pricing and, in many cases, pay refunds to hospitals, health centers, and clinics that had been charged too much. The Health Resources and Services Administration deserves tremendous credit for the creation of this valuable website tool. We also saw the beginning of a national debate over drug pricing. President Trump and the leaders of both political parties on Capitol Hill have put some important ideas on the table for debate. While there are many differences in how they approach this issue, the key point is that they are all pushing in the right direction. Patients need relief from the high cost of prescription drugs, and so do the safety net providers who care for them. It's my hope that in 2020, our leaders can come together on a common-sense set of reforms that slow the rise in prices, protect patients from financial pain, and protect the vital safety net. We also saw a continuation of the fight over how much Medicare pays 340B hospitals for drugs. Beginning in 2018, Medicare has been paying these hospitals nearly 30% less than it pays all other hospitals. A lawsuit challenging those cuts has led a federal court to rule them to be unlawful. But the government is appealing that decision and the cuts remain in place. These cuts are harming hospitals and their patients, and the sooner they are ended, the better. We must see a resolution to this issue early in 2020 so that we can get things back to an even keel. I'd also like to call attention to a very important initiative that President Trump announced nearly one year ago in a State of the Union address to Congress. The president called for dramatic action to reduce the number of infections with the human immunodeficiency virus that causes AIDS. In fact, the president set an ambitious goal to reduce infections by 90% by the end of the new decade. To achieve this, we must make sure that people who are at risk of acquiring HIV have access to prevention treatment known as PrEP that reduces their risk by more than 90%. And we must make sure people living with HIV have access to treatment that provides longer lives and reduces and reduced risk. A key part of that effort is the lower prices that these drugs, uh, that, that to these drugs that 340B guarantees. Finally, I will note that states have grown more active on 340B policymaking. In previous years, states focused primarily on how much their Medicaid programs were paying for drugs covered by 340B. But in 2019, we saw several states adopt legislation putting limits on private payers so that they cannot set discriminatory payment levels for 340B hospitals and pharmacies. This is an important issue for 340B because paying 340B providers less just because because they are in 340B undermines the purpose of 340B as it transfers benefits from safety net providers to insurers. We can expect states to remain busy in 2020 on 340B-related issues. We start this new year and new decade with cautious optimism. It's easy to focus on what divides us, but at this point in our national debate over healthcare, it will serve us well to focus on what can bring us together. Thanks again for having me join today's podcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Maureen. That was the president of 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Thanks again, Maureen. As we said at the top of the broadcast, decisions being made in Washington will impact every practice, facility, and health system. So what new regulations can we expect in 2020? Here now is regulatory expert Stanley Nockerson. Good morning, Stanley. Welcome to 2020, which happens to be both a leap year and a presidential election year. The presidential election will have a significant impact on the federal regulatory process. The administration will focus on some key initiatives 
early in the year to assure that they're accomplished under this administration and can be used in the campaign. As we get closer to Election Day, we can expect less action from the administration as its leaders are focused on campaigning or lining up new jobs, depending on the election results. Now, some of the key regulations and initiatives we can look forward to in 2020 include interoperability requirements for electronic health records, providers, and health plans. Both the Office of the National Coordinator and CMS have pending final rules for the exchange of clinical data among providers, health plans, and individuals. These are expected to greatly increase the amount of electronic information being exchanged by providing standard data sets, also known as the U.S. Core Data Set for Interoperability, and Application Program Interfaces, or APIs, for vendors to create exchange mechanisms. The regulations will also specify exceptions for when data need not be exchanged. Another key initiative is price transparency. In addition to access to clinical data, the administration has required hospitals and health plans to publish information about pricing, provider networks, and other key factors which enable individuals to make more informed choices about their health care. The intent is to enable patients to make more value-based decisions. There's been a lot of pushback, especially from the hospital industry, on some of these requirements, and we have yet to see how the courts will rule. We can also expect more value-based models for care delivery. CMS is expected to publish additional value-based models for the Medicare program, giving providers more flexibility in providing additional services and guidance for beneficiaries to improve the overall quality of care. Some recent models have provided additional funding for these services in exchange for risk-taking, along with proposals to relax some of the stark restrictions against referrals to aligned entities. And there may be a proposed rule for several new HIPAA standards, including attachments and electronic acknowledgments. Now, we can also be assured that the regular annual updates to fee schedules, PPS models, and coverage requirements for all the different types of providers will be published on schedule. These are generally legislatively mandated and high priority for CMS, no matter what year it is. So it'll be an exciting year on many fronts. Thanks, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT expert Stanley Dockerson. Stanley is the founder of Dockerson Advisors, LLC. We continue our 60-minute special edition, 2020 Look Out, Look Ahead. Here now is Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed, what are some of the developments in artificial intelligence we can expect in 2020? Hey, Chuck. Uh, more eye in 2020. The AI market was 16 billion in 2017, and five years from now, 190 billion. CAGR, 37%. Venture capital pouring in at the rate of 2 billion per quarter. AI chips are on the market. But what can it do for you? And what can it do in healthcare? AI can help doctors interpret MRIs of the heart, CT scans of the head, and photos of the back of the eye. Google DeepMind recently published a paper in Nature. Its AI system can read mammograms and identify breast cancer. FDA has been approving AI. One algorithm was approved in 2014, four in 2016, five in 2017. In 2018, 
11 were approved, including the first AI for medical diagnosis. No input required from a human clinician. By July of 2019, five had been approved. Radiology leads with 22 approvals, cardiology, 12, oncology, five, endocrinology, six, psychiatry, four. The rest are distributed across geriatrics, neurology, orthopedics, emergency medicine, ophthalmology, and pathology. AI groupies chirp about a bright future. Mundane medical chores can be done by algorithm. Doctors get more time to spend with patients. Life is good. The downside, AI sometimes makes mistakes. A diagnosis might change depending on irrelevant factors, such as the brand of the MRI machine. Employment is being hit. Have you been to an Amazon Go store? No cashiers. Only one or two persons stocking the shelves, soon to be replaced by robots. But don't fear. It will take a lifetime before AI will be able to lie to you as well as someone in sales. Look for more government regulation of AI in 2020. Some governments will restrict how businesses may use AI. Our most regressive state, California, comes to mind. AI must be fair to everyone. Let's get back to healthcare. Late last year, CMS issued an RFI asking for help. How can AI address the $21 billion lost each year? Rather than using algorithms to comb through the data, ferreting out fraud and abuse, CMS wants AI to prevent making bad payments in the first place. Pay and chase is out. AI is in. The CMS AI Health Outcomes Challenge just selected 25 participants. Some are the entrenched Washington Beltway aristocracy, Booz Allen Hamilton, IBM, Northrop Grumman, also academia, University of Virginia, Columbia University. Deep learning and neural networks will be used to predict adverse events and unplanned admissions to skilled nursing facilities and hospitals. Seven finalists will be announced in April. In September, a winner will get $1 million seed money. CMS wants help from AI, and it has the money to buy it. Stay tuned in 2020 for more. AI is the future of auditing. You may wish to pull out that old copy of 2001 Space Odyssey and reacquaint yourself with the HAL 9000. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Modern Investigator Reporter Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barraclue LLC, New York. What changes are in store for providers seeking to appeal denied claims in 2020? Here now with what to expect from the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Good morning, Drew. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck, and congratulations on 10 years. Let me first start and say sometimes the past informs the future. Uh, this year we had a home health agency case about $3 million projected. We sought an in-person hearing, which we hadn't done much in the past, and as a result of that entered into a number of stipulations with the medical uh, director. Um, we ended up paying a total uh, of $19,000 with several hundred thousand dollars in interest. So stipulations is something that we began to incorporate into the practice and I would recommend it for the future. Uh, frankly, we uh, used it again. We had four inpatient outpatient hospital cases 
and I contacted the medical director for a stipulation. We got a stipulation on three and won the fourth. And finally, quite recently, we just um, had a 100% overturn on all records received on a physical therapy case at reconsideration. And I want to thank Nancy Beckley and Nancy Beckley and Associates for the exceptional work that they did. Um, again, the, the lesson is focus on reconsideration. Don't wait till the ALJ. What else are we going to see? We're seeing an increase in Medicaid audits. We're seeing an increase in Medicare Part C. Um, remember, if you're in network or out of network, you have a different uh, appeals process. Now, um, what we're really going to see in the future may surprise a lot of people if it comes uh, to pass, and I, I think it may. I was speaking with Chief Judge uh, Griswold. Uh, we're presenting in February at the American Health Lawyers Physician and Hospital Conference, and she does believe that the uh, fiscal year in 2022 is when we will get current with the statutory requirement of 90 days between the time you request a hearing and the time you get a result. And so that really changes the dynamics that we have now. Um, on individual cases, it may be manageable on these large statistically projected cases. It's going to be challenging. It'll be the providers asking for some um, uh, extensions in order to prepare. But she really thinks we're going to get there. So folks should uh, plan that. Uh, for the future. And again, um, looking at the future, we've used a lot of settlements uh, through the uh, SCF. I think if we're going to use settlements, we're really going to have that type of time frame for hearings. We'll have to have some delay in the hearing to uh, take your shot uh, at the settlements. Uh, finally, I think we're going to see a continued use and increase the use of uh, eCAPE, the electronic system. Uh, for appeals, uh, we're monitoring case law that we have seen in the Ninth Circuit, which allows providers under the collateral claim exception to seek federal court intervention for injunctive relief when um, we have a large case and the contractor is withholding and doesn't agree to an, a, a, a payment plan that the uh, provider can't afford. Uh, finally, we're going to continue to see TPE. Um, the challenge with targeted promoted educators, instead of just appealing it, you have to provide the contractor that what they did was uh, not correct. If you appeal early, we've been able to use some uh, wins at redetermination and reconsideration to overcome the statistics and demonstrate uh, compliance, and there's generally a good success rate in getting out of PPE. With that, Chuck, I turn it back to you. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was Andrew Walkler. Drew was a managing partner of Walkler & Associates, and he certainly is a pivotal figure when we talk about the ALJ and the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. You're listening to a special 60-minute news edition of Monitor Monday 2020 Lookout, Look Ahead. And coming up, you're going to hear the latest hot-button issues facing inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. Angie Phillips is standing by with that report. Alan Fink-Sandwick has the latest on the social determinants for health. 
Ellen also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. William Dombey will join us later in the broadcast report on the plight of home care and hospice. And Leslie March is standing by in Lexington, Nebraska to report on serious issues facing rural health in 2020. We'll be back following program identification. This is Monday. It's January the 13th, 2020, and we're celebrating our 10th anniversary of live broadcasting. Stand by. If your facility is struggling with CMS discharge planning conditions of participation, here's good news. During an upcoming webcast, Mary Beth Pace, Vice President of Care for Trinity Health, will report on her system's approach to the new rule and the process of informed choice. Trinity Health already had processes in place, such as the quality indicators for high-performing skilled nursing facilities, but the new rule caused them to pause and reevaluate. Join the webcast to get a boots-on-the-ground look at how one of America's largest health systems has implemented the new rules in CMS discharge planning conditions of participation. That webcast is Tuesday, January 21st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. One of the hottest topics in healthcare continues to be the social determinants of health. But what can we expect in 2020 and beyond? Here now is author and educator Alan Fink-Sandwick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey, and welcome back, Alan. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, good Monday, everyone. Happy 2020. And to Chuck and the crew, some on this call and some unable to be here, a happy 20, uh, 10 years, rather, to Monitor Monday. I'm looking ahead to 20 already. So 2020 began as it ended, industry fixation on every nook and cranny of the social determinants, with no less than 20 stories each day across news outlets. There was one even this morning in that actually made me chuckle about palliative care poised to address the social determinants, which gets you wondering, what have they been doing up to now with any patients, clients, members, and consumers who are predisposed to those determinants? Well, here's the one that really got me going. Medicare hospital rating system doesn't do enough to account for social risk factors. Well, a study was published in Medical Care, which is released through the American Public Health Association. The 2017 Medicare Hospital Compare Ratings were linked with block group data from the 2015 American Community Survey. That survey assesses hospital ratings as a function of neighborhood social risk factors. Yep, you got it, those social determinants. Now, the study's goal was to examine the relationship between the ratings and neighborhood social risks, but it revealed a far grander challenge for the industry to reconcile. Here's the bottom line. N-worth 3,608 Medicare-certified hospitals across the 50 U.S. states. The measures included hospital summary stores, uh, scores and seven quality group scores using a 100 percentile scale of effectiveness of care, efficiency of care, hospital readmission, mortality, patient experience, safety of care, and timeliness of care, the usual suspects that we would expect to see. Now, lower hospital scores, summary scores, were associated with caring for neighborhoods with higher social risk, including a reduction in hospital score for every 10% of residents who are dual eligibles for Medicare and Medicaid, have no high school diploma, are unemployed, self-identified as Black or African American, and reported high travel times to work. 
the associations between neighborhood social risk factors and hospital ratings were smallest in the areas of safety, efficiency, and effectiveness of care groups. However, here's the kicker. The areas with the largest associations were timeliness of care, patient experience, and hospital readmission. Is this another situation of inherent bias in a rating system or potentially its algorithms? Just as the safety net hospitals are writing themselves after the initial inequity of readmission payment penalties, they may need to brace for another hit. Medicare could conceivably be underpaying hospitals that serve communities most at risk for the social determinants simply because of a skewed rating system. Hospitals that need the dollars the most. Now, outcomes are only as good as the tools developed to attain them. Those tools must reflect appropriate measures that are within context for the organization and its population. As the study states, failing to account for neighborhood social risk and hospital ratings may reinforce hidden disincentives, disincentives to care for medically underserved areas in the U.S., so here goes our first Monitor Monday listener survey for 2020, sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors. How should Medicare Hospital Compare reconcile the issue of accounting for neighborhood social risk and determinants? A, pull together industry stakeholders to develop SDOH-specific recommendations. B, obtain data on how much reimbursement was lost across hospitals. C, revamp the Medicare Hospital Compare rating system. D, scrap Medicare Hospital Compare. I never liked it anyway. We'll check back at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was author and educator Alan Fink-Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Our next guest is considered by many to be the nation's foremost authority on inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. She is a member of the RAC Monitor Editorial Board. Please welcome Angela Phillips, and good morning, Angie. What's new? Thanks, Chuck. Happy anniversary to Monitor Monday, and welcome to all our listeners. As you've already heard from other panel members, it's going to be an interesting year for all of us. So strap on your helmets, pull up your boots, and get ready for a rocky ride. Earths are going to be involved in many of the topics you've already heard about this morning and we'll hear later in the broadcast. Social determinants of health, discharge planning requirements, persistent and more detailed audits, increasing data collection, and the continuing journey towards site-neutral payment models. I'll address the impact of this on Earths, but much of this information will be important to all post-acute care settings. From the reimbursement perspective, organizations are reportedly having ongoing training issues with GG coding, and this could create issues with appropriate payment and failures in audits. So expect ongoing training offerings from CMS and take advantage of those opportunities. Be sure your documentation tools and templates promote success. Earth should expect the usual 2% average increase in revenue in October, but watch for a resurgence of the discussion related to the weighting of the motor scores to establish CMG placement and be prepared for a significantly increased administrative burden of collecting more and more and more data, including items related to social determinants of health that I'll talk about shortly. We also expect continued discussions and movement towards site-neutral unified payment where the payment is the same across all PAC settings and is based on patient characteristics. The ongoing alignment of the quality indicators collected across all PAC settings supports our predictions here. 
the Audrent environment will not get more pleasant. And as Andrew already noted, early appeal efforts are important. Don't worry about waiting to go to the ALJ. Start early and appeal at the lower levels. Watch for ongoing OIG audits that include IRF patients. The algorithm used to select organizations for OIG review appears to highlight organizations with IRF units, and the OIG typically reports very high error rates in IRF cases reviewed. Additionally, the OIG continues to push for a pre-authorization process for fee-for-service Medicare cases, although there's no precedent for this in any other PAC setting. Noridian, the current supplemental medical review contractor, continues to conduct um, post-payment review for IRF claims from the calendar year 2018. On a positive note, not that we've had much positive, Noridian does appear to be requesting smaller number of claims to review than their predecessor. Recovery audit reviews also continue, and while there's limits to the number of claims that can be requested in any review cycle, typically a positive, and currently only half of 1% per year, the number of claims that can be reviewed in future cycle increases dramatically based on your denial rate over three 45-day cycle periods. So denials in this area can have significant impact. This is particularly true for small organizations that have only a few claims reviewed. Here, a single denial can lead to a high error rate. And finally, Quality indicators, data collection, and earth pie changes are very significant and lead to more and more administrative burden. There are substantial changes to the earth pie coming in October. They continue the alignment of data collection across all PAC settings, and there are 28 pages, 28 pages of information in the change table that accompanies the updated earth pie. Changes include addition of many items, including hearing, vision, language, health literacy, transportation, social isolation, the impact of pain, documentation of med rec list to the patient and the next provider. There are significant expansion of items related to mental status and cognition, as well as addition of data collection on nutritional approaches, high-risk drug classes, and special treatments. With this high volume of added data collection, continuing audits, more audits and more audits, and the constant need to monitor documentation and quality indicator scoring, Earths aren't likely to get a breather in the coming year. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Angie. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is the founder and CEO of Imogen Associates, and you can read Angie's reporting on this very important topic in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor News. We continue with the 2020 season premiere of Monitor Monday with upcoming guest appearance by Leslie March. And we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey. Question, home care providers and hospice providers continue to be in the crosshairs of the OIG, and why is that? Helping to navigate his association through these treacherous waters is the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. That's William Dombey. So good morning, Bill. What's on the horizon for home care and hospice in 2020? Well, good morning, Chuck. And we have an interesting year on the horizon for both home health and hospice. You know, chronologically, I would pick uh, March as a starting point for when concerns arise, and that's when the Medicare Payment Advisor Commission issues its recommendations to Congress. 
With respect to hospice, it will be for the first time recommending that there be some changes in the structure of the hospice cap. This could have definite effect on the extent of services available under hospice and particularly affecting non-cancer diagnosis patients who tend to have a longer length of stay. In April, we expect CMS to come out with its notice of uh, uh, proposed rulemaking, uh, a typical annual event, and what's expected from that NPRM would be continuation of the path that CMS has taken over recent years, which is to continue to refine its quality of care data demands and some potential tweaking around the payment model. We also expect CMS throughout the year to expand its oversight of claims relative to hospice, given the significant growth in hospice over the last decade. Congress, on the other hand, will be busy with a few other things besides Medicare and certainly besides hospice this year, but we do expect the focus of Congress on hospice quality of care legislation. Uh, this comes on the heels of several OIG reports indicating some concerns relative to whether hospice provides an across-the-board high quality of services. The end result we would anticipate should legislation be passed would be increased volume of surveys, increased frequency of surveys for hospices, but also the institution of alternative sanctions for survey deficiencies, sanctions comparable to those that are faced by skilled nursing facilities and home health agencies. On to home health, MedPAC will come out with its March report that focuses on home health as well with recommendations, once again, of rate cuts. I think we're going to set a record for the number of years in a row where MedPAC recommends rate cuts for any provider sector. CMS in July will come out with its notice of proposed rulemaking for home health Medicare, and the focus of that will be updating PDGM, the payment model that took effect just days ago on January 1st. Overall, with CMS, we expect a lot of watching regarding PDGM. Quick background, no change in the benefit scope. It's supposed to be a budget-neutral payment system, but we still believe that there's going to be a lot of watching internal and external to home health agencies and CMS for some of the following changes. First, therapy utilization. The payment model discourages therapy utilization. Diagnosis coding. CMS has assumed that there will be some upcoding going on in the new payment model to improve reimbursement outcomes. Admission source. Currently, half of all episodes are coming from a community admission. Will this change since there is a downgrading of the reimbursement level for patients coming from a community setting in contrast to an inpatient setting? Then we'll be looking at patient mix as well as the new model incentivizes certain types of patients over others. A balancing of patients would be prudent, but that's not within the control of the home health agency. And then patient volume. Will the volume go up or go down? Very difficult to make a prediction on this, but one can anticipate that there will be likely some serious access issues uh, in certain parts of the country due to the new payment model. And finally, the activities we expect to go around oversight will continue to, to grow. Medicare will not stop its review choice demonstration program, instead expanding it into three additional states this year. Review choice is somewhat the equivalent of a prior authorization model. CMS continues to find value in doing claims oversight in home health. Uh, at the same time, we are seeing an increase in 
payments, otherwise known as a decrease in the CERT results with improper payments, dropping from a very high 59% to an estimated 12% for 2020. So thanks, Chuck, for the opportunity to return. Thanks, Bill, very much. That was the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice, Bill Dombey. To report on the plight of rural health in 2020 and beyond in this new decade is Leslie March. Leslie is the Chief Executive Officer for Lexington Regional Health in Lexington, Nebraska. And good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me on today's broadcast. And uh, 2020 begins a new year and a new decade. Hopefully this year and decade will be kinder to rural. You may remember that the GAO released a report in 2016 about the hospital closure crisis that began in 2020, 2010. Sadly, past year saw more rural hospital closures than any previous year. The North Carolina Rural Health Research Center reported 19 hospital closures, which is up from, eight, from 15 in 2018. This is bad news on several fronts. Just consider, a rural hospital employs about 300 people. So, on average, rural counties see a loss of about $1,400 income per capita. Adding insult to injury, between the years of 2004 and 2014, the nation saw a loss of hospital-based OB services in roughly 179 counties. And as those of us working in rural know, just because you say you do not offer OB, it doesn't mean that you don't deliver babies, just that you're less prepared to do so. As CEO of a rural critical access hospital, I'm proud of the care we deliver. In fact, I think we are uniquely positioned to address some of the poor social determinants of health and community challenges because we take care of our friends, our family mem- their family members, and neighbors. We sit next to them at church, and we bump into them at the grocery store buying snacks, probably not so healthy ones at that for the upcoming Super Bowl game. People often believe bigger is better, but that perception doesn't hold true for those services that we in rural most often provide. We have committed teams of providers that know their patients, and they choose to practice in rural settings because they're passionate about making a difference. Rather, quality of care, health outcomes, and mortality are not easily or accurately predicted because the dependent variables are not effectively factored into the equation. Just consider obesity. According to the CDC, there's a 20% difference between urban and rural populations. The best hospitals and or providers cannot overcome a 20% increased probability of a worse health outcome. If you were in Vegas, would you spend the heavier, less likely to win well? That's doubtful. So when you think about rural being worse, just remember that no matter the provider or the city, Mayo, Cleveland Clinic, Vegas, Reno, you name it, you're not going to be able to overcome some of these odds until or unless you begin to get to the root of the problem. Just recognizing that disparity exists is a start. Understanding rural strengths will better enable us all to convene community stakeholders and to leverage technology to move the needle. Most importantly, relationships with the people that we care for will have a large impact on health and mortality. Just by recognizing those relationships, 
you can, you can generate a low-cost and effective intervention. So as we usher in a new decade, I'm hopeful for the future because with knowledge comes change and rural healthcare with all of its rewards and challenges is trending right now. We can all work together to ensure that all people living in the United States have a more equitable chance at a brighter future. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Leslie, very much. That was the CEO for Lexington Regional Health, Leslie March. Leslie was calling in from Lexington, Nebraska. And now's the time for the Monitor Monday listeners survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Well, I have literally been blown away by the feedback and input from our listeners today on this survey. How should Medicare hospital compare reconcile the issues of accounting for neighborhood social risk? I got to say, our listeners don't have a lot of trust in the current mechanism pull together industry stakeholders to develop SDOH-specific recommendations? Well, 27% thought that was a good idea. Oh, and it's like changing as I'm looking at it. Just 27% obtained data on how much reimbursement was actually lost across hospitals and health systems. Far less than I thought. Also, 27% thought that was a good approach to take. C revamp the Medicare hospital compare rating system. 36, almost 37% of our listeners went that route. Scrap hospital compare because I never liked it anyway. Well, you guys were on to me. I was joking, sort of. Roughly 9% of listeners thought that that was a good idea. Obviously, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We will see what happens with this interesting development and how Medicare Hospital Compare opts to address the social determinants of health and catch up with everyone else in the industry. Back to you, Chuck. Now let's gather around our virtual roundtable this morning. It's a large one, considering we have 11 panelists. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley to answer your questions. Nancy. Well, Chuck, we had a question come in from Betty early in the program, and she's specifically asking Maureen, can the savings from 340B be used for SAD? Maureen, can you answer that question? Yeah, it's a really great question. So fortunately, uh, 340B can be used for any outpatient drug that a hospital uses for its eligible outpatients. So if you're using drugs to treat SAD, then you can purchase the drugs um, at the 340B discount if they are for your hospital patients. In addition, any savings that you get from being in the program, you can also put towards treatment plans for SAD even if they do not relate to drugs at all. 340B savings do not have to be used just for drugs. You can use them for any other um, treatment program that you believe will help your patients. Okay, thanks, Maureen. Drew, we got a question for you. If you could please explain what is a stipulation. There's actually a provision for it in the regulations that you can stipulate at hearings to... Uh, agreements on a particular case. So if you have a number of cases or one case, the parties can agree to it. Um, I've always thought that this could have a bigger impact than I think it was intended and started to incorporate into our practice contacting uh, the medical director or trying to work with the medical director of the contractor at the hearing to agree that certain services should be covered. 
So we began to establish, for example, during our um, home health agency case, that we would present our facts and we would turn to the medical director. We were in person, he was on the uh, screen, and uh, he agreed to a large uh, number of cases. So I try to incorporate that into our practice to get them to agree. Sometimes we may agree that a case doesn't meet criteria, but that's what a stipulation is, an agreement between parties that a service is covered. Thanks, Drew. And one other uh, question that came in, I think it was actually from Chuck. You had mentioned something with reference to 90 days. Do you recollect making that reference? Yeah, the statutory mandate from the time you request a hearing to the time that you're entitled to a decision is 90 days. Nobody really thinks about it because that doesn't happen. But if we get back to complying with the statute, that's the time frame we're talking about if and when we address the backlog. And then I have a question from a client that contacted me that was that's facing appeals, and they wanted to know if there was any updates on the backlog to the ALJ. So how long is that backlog now? I think according to uh, my discussions with uh, Judge Griswold, they are on a track, and I, I think, I, I can't say this is where they are, but they're supposed to have cut the backlog down by 50% in uh, fiscal year end. Uh, 2020, but we're looking at fiscal year end 2022 as the date that we're supposed to be current. I'm not finding that we're getting to hearings any faster yet, Um, so I don't think we're seeing it in our experience, but in terms of the actual uh, backlogs, with what I think we're going to see with the doubling of the number of ALJs, we're going to see uh, over the next couple of years a, a reduction of the backlog because of the increase in uh, ALJs available to have hearings. Thank you, Drew. And Chuck, I think that's all the time that we have questions for on our 10-year anniversary edition. Back to you. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And Drew, thank you again for uh, answering those questions. And Nancy's right. This is going to be a wrap for our special 60-minute news edition, 2020 Lookout Look Ahead. And a special thanks to our panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, William Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Leslie March, Angela Phillips, Edward Roach, Maureen Testoni, Stanley Nockerson, and, of course, Andrew Walker. And a very special thank you for listening today, especially to those of you who have been loyal listeners. Remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts on demand, anytime, anywhere, on any device. And, of course, it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.